0: This is the way out there. Conversations and stories about the relationship between people and the outdoors. We interview outdoor leaders, teachers, guides, and everyday individuals who have answered a call to step into the vast beauty out there. By hearing their stories, we hope you'll be inspired to go way out there yourself. Andrew Wonderly is Charleston's waterkeeper and serves as the eyes, ears, and voice of our local waterways. He and the larger Waterkeeper team work to protect and restore the quality of our local waterways for the community at whole and for generations to come. You may have seen them doing water quality monitoring at various sites around Charleston's harbor, rivers, and creeks, or leading beach and marsh cleanups and oyster bed renourishments, or manning a booth and educating people at local events, or speaking up on behalf of our water and our community at local and state government meetings. Waterkeeper is 100% dedicated to the pursuit of drinkable, fishable, and swimmable water. An important and relevant mission given that most everything here in Charleston traces its origins back to the water. It's the way we orient ourselves and it's woven into our everyday lives. We sat down with Andrew at the Charleston Waterkeeper office to catch up, discuss the big water quality issues we're facing right now, hear more about their programs and efforts, and ultimately learn about something called The First Flush. Well, Andrew Wonderly, thanks for joining us on the way out there. Well, thanks for having me. It's awesome. We're here in the top floor of the Waterkeeper offices. (laughs) (laughs) The top floor or the only floor? (laughs) On the first sunny day in like three weeks in Charleston's weather. It's been pretty awesome. Beautiful. Um, Thank you for, for spending your time to do this and uh, tell us
1: a little bit more about your background and Waterkeeper. Yeah, this is really fun. I have a secret love for this kind of thing. So, awesome. uh,
0: Well, the only thing better than doing this in your office would be being out on the water with you guys. Um, so we're going to have to figure that out for our next one. Yeah, we'll save that for the next episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, well, look, speaking of water, let's dig right into it. So um, if you're living in Charleston or you're visiting Charleston, you look around and all you see is beautiful water everywhere rivers, harbors, marshes, beaches, it all looks pretty spectacular. So, um, what's the status of the water here, the waterways and its quality?
1: Yeah. Well, the, uh, the simple answer I think is it depends, right? And it depends on when and and where you are. The, um, the main driver of water quality here locally is, is rainfall. So if it's been raining, water quality is very poor. If it's been dry for a period of time, water quality is generally better. And do you see that
0: spike like with a bad rainstorm in an afternoon or does it have to be successive days of sort of Oh it's rain?
1: almost immediate. It's almost immediate like within a number of hours really and it doesn't take much rain you know really only a few inches if that. Uh, and the, the the interesting thing is uh, you'd expect it to be bad or the, the worst after it's been raining a lot and it's it's definitely bad but it's it, it's the worst or most acute after a long prolonged period of dry weather and then a really heavy rainstorm is it washes all that stuff that you know the bacteria the pesticides the herbicides that the has had trash, some time to build right it's all built up on the land and then when the water hits it it just runs right off into that the first that first release yeah it's good they call it the first flush right Ooh. which is why when you go out to like California and it's you know dry for months at, you know on end or weeks on end that sort of thing that's why the you know they I mean geez I think they even recommend like 72 hours out of the water uh, pretty serious water quality issues after it rains out there. Uh, I don't like the sound of the first flush. Right. Yeah, we don't want the first flush of pollutants. Well,
0: what are we? What are kind of things um, are in the water after a first flush or, or even on an ongoing basis?
1: You name it, anything that's on the ground, anything that's on the ground or in the soil uh, ends up in the water. Uh, you know, typically what we see are, are really high levels of bacteria. So those bacteria levels will spike. That's coming from overflowing, you know, sewer lines. It's coming from, you know, inundated septic tank fields. It's you know bird and and pet waste and and that kind of thing just you know it, it it's it's sort of like uh it's sort of like swimming in your shower water right yeah, you know yeah, after yeah. you've been outside all day come on and take a shower you probably don't want to go swimming in the water that's you know in the bottom of the shower or or maybe bathtub water is a better analogy yeah, I don't know yeah. uh but it it uh it, it it can be pretty gross after a heavy rainfall uh, you know that's that's just the, the easy answer, the more complicated answer is there's a lot that we don't know. Um, there's not a lot of regulation that controls sort of the types and amounts of pollutants that you're allowed to discharge, and what regulation is on the books is generally pretty weak. And so as a result, I think you see um, some really... I guess the the term for them is called contaminants of emerging concern. And so those are things like, uh, you know, the microfiber pollution or microbeads. You see some of those little plastic beads, those sorts of things. Uh, The other thing is there's a whole class of chemicals now called perfluorinated chemicals, right? And so they're carbon and fluorine atoms all linked together. They, um, excuse me, they have uh, really unique properties and they can. Uh, repel water and grease and that sort of thing. So they're used in a wide range of consumer products. Remember Teflon or Gore-Tex, right? Those were perfluorinated chemicals. They've been voluntarily phased out by the manufacturer. The problem is they're incredibly long-lived and persistent in the environment. Well, they were designed to be that way for their original applications. Exactly. That's exactly. They're 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 working perfectly. The problem is that they're out, you know, in sediment, in water. Uh, if you pulled, you know, redfish out of the harbor, if you sampled dolphin, you would find those contaminants in their blood and in their blubber. And actually, if you sampled us right here, right now, you would find those same contaminants. So if if you think about that all the way, way up the chain basically right exactly all the way up the chain they bioaccumulate and so the uh, higher you are in the food chain the the more they accumulate in your system the scary thing about that to me and the thing that I think is just completely unacceptable is that 3M and DuPont the manufacturers those chemicals have trespassed on our bodies right. in a way right that, that their chemical is in my body and I didn't give them permission to do that yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, when you look at these different,
1: uh, what's the right word here?
0: Types of pollutants. I mean, you've got the yeah. bacterias, the plastics yeah. and the chemicals. Yeah. Um, how much testing and monitoring of those, those three groupings done on a regular basis around here? Like what, what do we know and what do we not know?
1: We don't know a lot. A lot? Uh, there, there's, and let me walk you through some of it. I mean, for the bacteria, uh, for the inland waterways, the creeks, the rivers, the harbor, we're by and far the most robust program and we have um, the, the deepest you know, data set that exists for our waterways.
0: And that's what many people know waterkeeper for.
1: Right. Is, uh, our, our weekly water quality sampling right, May right. through October and, and, um, and that's primarily focused on the bacterial elements. Right. That's focused on bacteria. The question we're trying to answer there is is it safe to go swimming? And you know, before we started doing this work, uh, you know nobody could really tell you. Uh, there was uh, some data from the Department of Health and Environmental Control, but at most they were only sampling once uh, every two weeks. So in a year, you know, they might have, you know, a handful of data points and um you know, we'll, we'll get, <laughs> you know, we get three samples out of Shem Creek alone every week, May through October. So the, the degree of resolution we have is is really high. We get a, you know, much tighter, you know, relationship between rainfall and tide stage and, and bacteria level and all that. So we have a, a much better handle on sort of the dynamics of the situation, I think. So It's it's, in my opinion, is the best data set there is in terms of you know, if you're trying to answer that question, is it safe to go swimming? Let well, me ask yeah. a silly
0: question in there. Why? Uh, what happens in the winter? Why do you not do the testing in the winter? Is it just more difficult, or do the? Uh,
1: no, no. The, um, part part of it's funding. Uh, it's the most expensive thing we do. Just to give you an idea, the the fair market value for the sample analysis is about sixty bucks. So every single one of the samples that we take costs about sixty dollars. Um, <throat> excuse me. And it's a process no. of having to go get on
0: site test it, bring these samples back, done with a certain methodology, and then go to a
1: lab. Exactly. (laughs) There's there's a lot of logistics uh, that go in behind the scenes that the public never really sees. Mm Uh, and, and it's, it's, I mean, it's everything from how cold the cooler has to be to what type of thermometers, what the gradation on the thermometers has to be to how long from the time you took the first sample to the time it goes into the lab to be analyzed, what temperature the incubators are at, when was the last time they were calibrated. I mean, you know, it goes, it goes on and on. We generate probably two or three, uh, three inch binder notebooks of, uh, quality assurance and quality control protocols and data keeping and record keeping every year it, it's it's quite a bit the, you know the, the real reason with the winter versus summer thing is that folks aren't out recreating the same way or with the same intensity and so with a limited amount of resources you have to apply them when you're going to get the most bang for your buck and so that's may through october which captures the recreational use season that makes sense.
0: And does yeah. uh, anyone else out there complementing the work that you're doing in that kind of bacteria testing? Are there other organizations, or are you pretty much the one doing it in this region?
1: So DHEC does sample the marine beaches, you know, Folly Beach, Isle of Palms, Sullivan's, all that. And um, they do that work. Uh, so I think Isle of Palms County Park, they do once a week, but everywhere else is once every two weeks. So... Uh, you know, the, the, which is great. I mean, it's good work and they should be doing that. They get money from the federal government through something called the Federal Beach Act, which supplies them with funding to be able to do that work. I think my big beef with it is they um, their general sort of posture is like, well, just assume everything's fine unless we tell you otherwise, right? Yeah. And that's just, it's not good enough, right? I mean, yeah. we, we have a right to know whether or not it's safe to go swimming, period, right? This is better. Right. And, and you know, this idea of like, well, somebody will come and like knock on my door and tell me when maybe I shouldn't go swimming that day is just ridiculous. And, and I think really what's at play is, you know, the tourism dollar really drives a lot of the economy throughout the coast. And I think DHEC's just flat out afraid, to say you know we have poor water quality in some instances, right? And you especially see that up and around Myrtle Beach, where they have um, the swashes empty, right? So they have tidal creeks that is, they don't have barrier islands up there, and the tidal creeks and are you know will collect all that stormwater and polluted floodwater and drain it right out into the ocean, right? Here all that hits in the harbor and the Ashley River and the Cooper River. Our marine beaches don't have the outfalls so there are a few more layers of filtering going on yeah and generally our marine beaches test really well so we're really fortunate and so you you don't see a lot of high bacteria results for the beaches you'll see a couple from sullivan's island when the tide pools kind of get washed out and you got a lot of congregation of bird and shorebird and wildlife and stuff in those in those tide pools do you see any trends in the bacteria numbers over the last couple years They generally have not gotten better. Uh, You know, we've about six years worth of data, and they've they've usually we hover right around thirty percent of the samples we take don't meet their water quality standard for safe recreational use. That's a um, nice way of saying you might get sick if you go swimming, or you have an increased risk of being you know getting sick if you go swimming. So you know, at best in a given year, you know, maybe let's say sixty-five to seventy percent of the samples might pass, uh, which. You know, I don't know when my kid brings home a sixty-five on the on the math <laughs> test. I'm not too pleased. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, we need we need to be doing better. There's there's no reason, and and you know, law requires the you know the policy of the Federal Clean Water Act is that all the nation's waters be fishable and swimmable, and a lot of our waterways do not meet that standard, and that's what. I mean, that's what we're after as an organization, right?
0: <laughs> well, the rigorous methodology of collecting that data and that science is, seems to be pretty fundamental to Waterkeeper and the approach of the organization. What do you hope to actually do with that data as you go about your advocacy or issue planning or education programs?
1: You know, data for data's sake is just sort of pointless, right? Like it's just, it ends up being a bunch of numbers. Well, what are, what, you know, what are we going to do with it? Right. You know, the first level, the first level is taking that data and giving it to the public so they can make a good choice about, you know, how to keep their family and themselves safe when they go swimming. Knowledge. So that's number one. Yeah, it's awareness, it's knowledge, it's getting it into the arms or, you know, hands of the people that are going to use it to make good choices. The second one is we use it to know where to focus our resources, right? We're, uh, you know, a, a two full-time employees and, you know, some part-time help here and there. And... and. Um, you know, we need to know where to stay focused, and so really quickly, the data showed that Chem Creek and James Island Creek were two hotspots for bacteria pollution. They sort of trade off each week about who's worse, right? right? right. And. Uh, uh, the, the third level is is to take that data and use it as leverage to get the state to live up to its mandate under the Clean Water Act to fix and improve water quality where it doesn't meet water quality standards. And so we've used that data as pressure to get DHEC and the town of Mount Pleasant focused on a cleanup plan for Shem Creek. And we've used it to get the city of Charleston, the county and town of James Island and DHEC focused on cleaning up James Island Creek. And... Um, you know, that's the part of the regulatory structure that protects water quality that really hasn't been brought to bear yet, right? It's right. pretty easy to set a water quality standard. It's just a matter of writing it down. And, you know, it's pretty easy to do the science. It's just a matter of expertise and money. And and it, you know, it, it can be done. There's nothing complicated or, you know, difficult about it. But fixing water quality after it's You know, been destroyed is the hardest is is the hardest part of the whole system. And so that's, you know, in a lot of ways that program our water quality monitoring work and the data is a way for us to bring home the bacon in a sense, right, to get state resources focused on our local waterways to get them cleaned up.
0: That's what it's all about. And just hearing the difficulty of that environment. So you've got to deal with the public entities who also then need to deal with the private, the private entities, right? <laughs> right, To yeah. make the right kinds of changes <laughs> to see the improvements we want.
1: It 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 is a uh, morass of meetings and conversations okay. and emails and phone calls and policy and regulatory, you know, regulations and laws, and, and it's, it makes you want to pull your hair. I probably got a lot more gray hair now than I did when I started this work. Well, that's on uh, <laughs> that's on the bacteria side. What about, is there testing that's going on on the chemical or plastic side? So, uh, <laughs> there, uh, there are a couple of interesting programs, right? On, on the on the plastic side, uh, there's been some interesting work from uh, Dr. John Weinstein at the Citadel. is really zeroed in on, on microplastics, you know, types, amounts, uh, source that sort of thing
0: and is this similar to what you read about in the oceans across the world
1: right yeah and that research has been absolutely instrumental serving as a, a basis or a foundation for us and, and other folks in the con- conservation community to advocate from I mean it's it's a really it's a privilege uh, and it just puts us so far ahead of the curve to have a, a locally focused body of research that looked at that problem as I think before we tapped into that, Folks would think, oh, there's these, you know, big garbage patches in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? But if we were to get up right now and and walk over to Waterfront Park, right, hop the fence and go mucking around in the marsh down there, you would be struck, I mean, dumbstruck by how much... Plastic pollution is just yeah. stuck all down in the marsh. So, are we talking about the big pieces that form the
0: giant island out in the Pacific? Or are we talking about small, invisible pieces, or do the big pieces Both. become little pieces <laughs> yeah, of, bo- over time? Yes, and yes, and yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Right, all that stuff that gets out into the middle of the ocean or down at the bottom of the ocean comes from land, right? right. You know, <laughs> I mean, the, the you know, I saw the, spi- the picture not too long ago of a, a can mm. of Spam, you know, like a thousand feet down in the Pacific. Wow. I mean, it didn't. You know, just get manufactured out there, right? <laughs> right. It came, it came from somewhere, uh, and so you know, all this stuff comes from land. Uh, the uh, you know, th- then there's then what happens after it's in the environment is you know through like photo degradation and bacteria and all it breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces with microplastic. The other thing is, you know, you start. Um, Looking at other sources of microplastic, right, the way our tires wear when we drive our cars, uh, when, when we wash our uh, fancy fleece outdoor gear, right, that'll shed microplastic, uh, you know, polyester fibers and that kind of thing. Now, some of that gets caught up, you know, the, the wash and the stuff from your home gets caught up, some of it, in a, in a sewage treatment plant. But, you know, the tire wear particles will come right off and, and out into the nearest creek. Yeah, and the, the smaller and smaller pieces are right. going to make their way into the, right. to the harbor. So you know, it's it's been great to have Dr. Weinstein's research out of the Citadel. I, it's just been fantastic, and I think it's it's served. You know, you take that work plus our work with the volunteer corps, and you know, putting folks out into those environments to do the cleanups to quantify what's been coming out of it. You know, we and then turn pump that sort of qualitative data back into a service called ANIC Data that the aquarium had set up. It's a sort of a citizen science um, digital platform for you know, quantifying the volume and types of debris that are coming out during cleanups. You know, those two sources of data served as the basis for you know, for Charleston Waterkeeper, and I think some of the other folks too, getting involved in these single-use plastic bands. Right. Because you you really quickly, the, the minute you do a cleanup, it's it's all single-use single plastic bags, it's styrofoam bits, it's straws, it's all that stuff. And you start thinking, the, the minute you peel back that first layer, you're like, well, wait a minute, all those things cannot be recycled, right? They can't go in your blue roll cart, so where are they ending up, right? They're ending up out in the environment, which is, you know, not the way you know, I don't think that's good policy on anybody's part, right? Right. So, you know, we got with, you know, the town of Mount Pleasant, the city of Charleston, Isle of Palms. I mean, all these communities, you know, when you become aware of the problem, you know, and and you see the data, it just, you know, there's something you can do about it. You can stop, you know, having this, you know, stuff in your, you can stop having this stuff in your community. (laughs) And so, you know, really... You know, the case, I think, makes itself. You know, everybody loves Charleston, and we, we just, you know, we don't need that kind of crap. It's is an impossible, um, probably, answer, or uh, question to
0: answer. But if you go back to the original sort of thought is that, you know, you look around here and we're surrounded by such beauty in this really special place we call home uh, and expand that out to the larger low country— do we have a sense that uh, that the the quality of the waters here are better than average, or about average across you know the coast and up and down the East Coast? Uh, are we yeah, are we at greater risk, or is it just an impossible broad stroke answer to give?
1: I, I, um, no, not, not impossible. I think one of the obstacles that we at Waterkeeper have to overcome a lot of times is is you hear people say oh, we're so lucky to have all these pristine waterways. We have, you know, abundant supply of this or, you know, an abundant supply of clean water and, and you know, the, these, you know, vast expanses of marsh and, you know, pristine creeks and rivers and all that sort of thing. And I think, you know, when you compare it to, let's say, you know, Boston Harbor, you compare it to the Gowanus Canal in New York City, you know, I mean, it probably does look pretty pristine to the untrained eye. But the, the minute, you spend any time on the water, you know things aren't healthy, right? And, you know, if you show me people and you show me urban and suburban development, I'll show you degraded and poor water quality, right? And I'll show you degraded habitat. That's just the way it works. We humans are hard on our surroundings, right? We extract value out of them and, and we use it, but we don't ever put it back, right? And and that's that what that's what I think fundamentally has to change, is our relationship to the surrounding water, right? We, we're we're, you know we're here and we're you know inextricably linked to it, right? I mean, and it's coming back up onto land and telling us like, hey, pay the hell attention, right? right? Like it's it's all it's you know it's trying to warn us, right? It is. I mean, and and, you know we we can kind of chuckle about it, but that's exactly what's happening. And you know every time, you know every time it floods, right? It's it's a threat to you know, health, right? You know, it's a threat to, you know, our health and our, our prosperity and our economy. It's a threat to our property. But the thing that we don't think about is it's also an ecological disaster, right? It, all that flood water is terribly polluted and, and really dirty and it just drains away without any, you know, treatment whatsoever. <laughs> Um, you know, the same way as when it when, when it rains. And I think... Um, well, I was going to ask you that. That was sort of the last uh,
0: topic is with the increased flooding, whether that's from larger tides, more storms, or just a general increase in, you know, the water levels. So that only adds to the problem.
1: Right, right. Yeah, uh, you know, I... I, <laughs> you know, it, it the, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, I, I've really started, I, I think a lot of times we've just looked at these flights, like, oh my gosh, it's, it's tragic. Like it's, you know, we can't get to work on time or it's snarling the commute, you know, and all this sort of stuff. I think it's how a lot of us relate to it. And, you know, I think, you know, I, like a lot of people, you know, initially that's how I related to it as well. You know, like, i you know, stuck in an office building that you know is is surrounded by water. Sometimes I right? can't get home. <laughs> yeah, literally, I've had get to wade out of here. Yeah. And and you you know, but the the when you when you pair that with a knowledge of how our land and water are supposed to work together, you really quickly understand that it's just. I mean, it's catastrophic for local waterways. Um, you know, our, our land and water are you know evolved over eons, right? It just to, to to work together in a really neat way. I, nature has a way to control flooding; it's called the wetland. And over time, we have not respected wetlands, and we we still don't in the way that we need to in order to survive. This right, the the wetland is nature's way of filtering polluted floodwater and controlling and storing floodwater. And if we respected that, we wouldn't be in this problem, right? You still see engineering solutions today that are built on the same set of foundation, you know, the same set of thinking, you know, foundational level thinking that, that, you know, we did in 1700 when we filled in Vanderhorst Creek, which is now Water Street, right? And, you know, it's all about like, oh yeah, well, you know, we've got some numbers and some math that show that we can hold such and such amount of water and we can send it six different directions, none of which are the way that nature intended it to go. And that's going to fix the problem. And, you know, it might under some scenarios, but our our arrogance is that, Hey, we can deal with this. Right. We can develop a
0: system that does better.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like we know better, right. Right, We, we, you know, in our, uh, you know, in our, 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 You know, (laughs) in our thirty or forty-year careers, we've figured out a way to outsmart you know (laughs) uh, eons of geologic and hydrologic process.
0: (laughs) Let me go back to something you said a second ago, which I really like is the is the fact that you guys are out on the water, especially during obviously water testing. Um, time of year but you're out on the water all the time running events and doing other programs and the combination of you and the others who I would imagine are sort of the front lines of this you've got recreational and commercial fishermen you've got other types of uh, water sports surfers um there are people out there that are seeing this firsthand. The challenge in large part may be that for those of us who aren't out there day in and day out, you might be passing by it, looking out your car window, looking out from a, from a home or an office, and it all looks fine. But it's not until you get out onto the water and into the water that you start noticing the impacts. I, I'm,
1: I'm on the water a lot. Um, I'm either in it or on it right. <laughs> a, a lot, and, and there, there, there's people that have many more years of experience and, and eyes and time on the water than I do. And I think the general consensus when I talked when I talk to those people, whether it be fishermen or sailors or surfers or whoever, when you talk to those folks, that the thing that you hear universally is it's just not the same as it used to be, mm. right? I don't catch the same fish that I used to catch. I don't catch them in the same places. I don't catch as many. Or the oysters I used to harvest here just aren't as big and fat as they used to be. Or, you know, it, it you, you hear that like it's just changing and it's changing, you know, you, you're, you're talking about change over the, you know, not thousands or millions of years. You're talking about change over the course of 30 years. Yeah. Right, forty yeah. years, twenty years in some cases, and and that's what's really scary is is the the rapid change. You know, the pace to that change is is much more rapid, I think, than at any time in history. Um, the, and um, so, um, go ahead. Sorry. No, uh, I was going to say that that you know it's that it's that universal theme of of something's different, right? And and you know that that only sort of that astute time on the water can teach you that that really strikes me as as scary the
0: waterkeeper as an organization or an alliance the larger entity in uh, the original waterkeeper or river keeper maybe you can you can yeah. help correct me on that has a pretty fascinating sort of origin story right. can you share that <laughs> yeah the uh the
1: the you know the basic idea of a waterkeeper right is is a a local voice that speaks for and on behalf of their local waterways and uh, you know, here in Charleston, it's the Ashley, Cooper, Wando, and Stono River. Well, that kind of nut of environmental activism and environmental uh, uh, stewardship was formed on the Hudson River back in the late 1960s. And, you know, in a in a urban river like the Hudson River, you know, really running right through the heart of one of the biggest cities in the world, I, it had years and years of abuse and, and degradation and, and all that. And so, you know, there were, for you know, hundreds of years, commercial fishermen that made their living catching fish out of the Hudson River and, and selling them and bringing them to market. And you know, by the late '60s, with the, it, with the river was so polluted that you know nobody wanted the fish, right? You couldn't eat the fish even if you caught them, and you know you had trouble catching the fish. Like things had changed to the point where these guys could no longer make a living. And I guess there's no better way to to, to tell the story is frankly, I just got pissed, yeah. right? And they wanted to do something about it. And so they they kinda of band together under the uh, organization of something called the Hudson Rivers the Hudson River Fishermen's Association. And there's all these great stories about, you know, them sitting around, you know, you can imagine all these kind of big burly New York City kind of dudes, right? Salty guys. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Commercial fishermen, right? Yeah. You know. They're not ones to take much, you know, take much on, on the chin. And so uh, one of the ideas was that they would uh, soak, an o- uh, soak a mattress in oil and then stuff it in one of the discharge pipes, and then light it on fire and, and wow. basically run. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> one of the uh, one of the more cooler heads I think in the room prevailed and said, "Well, why don't we, you know, form an organization and and hire somebody to keep an eye on, and take care of the river?" And that was that first <laughs> nut of a river keeper, right? Was that you know there should be somebody that patrols, is on the water, that pays attention to who's polluting the river and
0: and um, but it was citizen led citizen started and these were people on the on the front lines or on the water.
1: I mean these these aren't, you know, these aren't Harvard Yale graduates, they're not, you know, scientists, they're not you know, they they were literally hunters and fishermen who, you know, were Frankly, right, just pissed. Yeah, like I said, pissed that <laughs> right. they saw the river and yeah. their livelihoods right. disappearing. That's that's it, and and you know that that is such a powerful notion. I mean, I, I think you know there's no truer measure of a community than how you take care of a river, right? And because the, the river is the common denominator, right? And it's it's sort of the I, I guess the way I'd, I'd better say it maybe is that it's sort of the least common denominator among us, right? It's the lowest thing in the community. And it's where everything good and bad goes to, right? I mean, you go down to the river after a tough day to seek inspiration, right? But you, you know, that's also where all your sewage goes right. and all the trash ends up, right. right? And so, you know, that that's what a riverkeeper is designed to do is flip that equation on its head. Say like, no, this is something here that we need to take care of. That's a source of, you know, that that sustains us as a community and is part of our community. And it's so sort to of elevate you know, the river to be equal with, you know, the economic interest of a community or the, or the, you know, the development interest of a community, right? To elevate that, you know, to, to, to and, and to put it at the table, right? And, and, and help it be and make it be respected. Now that's the, that's the essential nut of what a waterkeeper does. Yeah. And the citizen science
0: aspect of that is sort of fascinating. And is that Spirit influence the way Charleston Waterkeeper works, and even waterkeepers and riverkeepers and other communities across the country.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty unique to to you know riverkeepers, baykeepers, soundkeepers, harborkeepers, you know waterkeepers all all over. Is is that idea of uh, sort of like engaged activism and it takes the form of many different tools, right? I mean, it can be, you know, pretty classic direct action, you know, picketing and being out in front of a business or, you know, that a sort of thing. Council meeting. Council meetings, right? Or it could it could take the form of a, a, a citizen science, you know, water quality testing program. It can take the form of, of um, like, you know, I mean, geez, we had 100 people out this weekend shoveling oyster shell to, to replenish and restore oyster beds in the Charleston And what Harbor. do you see happening in these volunteers that come out? Because I think you all are known
0: for having a very strong... Strong volunteer program in general. What happens in these people's hearts and minds when they come out and help uh, re-nourish an oyster reef or pick up trash and plastic from a marsh or whatever? I
1: uh, it it, <laughs> I, it it's one of the most inspiring things and one of the, my favorite parts about uh, serving as Charleston's waterkeeper is like you. You know, people come out, and you know, we—it's usually a you know a two-hour commitment on a Saturday morning, you know, to do oysters or to to you know clean up or to do something else, and you know, you can see people are not so sure about what it's going to be like, you know, if it's their first time, and like, well, okay, what are we going to do? And they're kind of a little bit nervous, but. When, it, when it's done, they're soaking wet, they're sweaty, they're dirty, and they are grinning like from ear to ear, right? And, and, and you can just see the light bulb come on. Like, this is something I can do. This is something I can participate in. I can make a difference, right? I can play a role in the future of my waterways about whether they're healthy and protected or about whether they're degraded and dirty. And, and you know, that I, you know that sort of empowerment in people I, is a powerful thing, right? I, that is is what and and you know it's it's one thing you know uh, you know this idea of environmental education and awareness. It's all that's great. Firm believer in it, right? But I, I think you have to take people and show them, like you have to put them in those environments in order for it to really click. Right? I'd agree with that.
0: And then the activity happens, and then you can figure out how do they channel that interest and that action. Right. And, and I think you said uh, you've seen that where people who have been out volunteering volunteering with you for monitoring or cleanup sessions have then come out to a council meeting and oh, voice so their cool. concerns. And that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't have taken that first right. step.
1: I you know, it. I, I guess the way I would describe it is I think the volunteer event is probably a gateway for further right. involvement with Charleston yeah. Waterkeeper. And so- I, you know, and the the you 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 can't do a cleanup with us and then come away and say we don't have a problem with plastic pollution. And it it's just it's a natural thing. Like oh, there's a problem. I need to do something. To, we can help fix this, right? And so, I you know I, I think um, I've to, I've told this story before, but you know this this idea that we were you know in the thick of it over with the town of Mount Pleasant and and. Um, you know, I remember it was the okay, the, the Mount Pleasant single-use plastic ban came up for a final vote. And, you know, you never know. Like, there's always all this nervousness around. Like, is it going to happen? Are they going to be able to, you know, secure all the votes and all that? And I remember sitting in council chambers and— you know, volunteer walks in and, you know, another one walks in. You start looking around the room as it's filling up and it was like, oh, there's a waterkeeper volunteer and there's another waterkeeper volunteer. And there's, I know they've volunteered with us. And, you know, pretty soon you realize the room was filled with a lot of our volunteers. And it was just, and at that moment it was like, okay, we got this. (laughs) like This is going to happen and it's going to happen tonight. And it's really neat to see people that have come out and spent some mornings cleaning up plastic out of the marsh and when they get up there and they take that microphone and they take that podium to speak to their elected representatives, their you know, whether it's town council or whether it's a state or a federal or whatever, their voice is so much more powerful than mine could ever be. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, it, it you know, their personal experience as a constituent and you know, as somebody that cares and somebody that took the time to come out and show up and and you know stand up and take the mic. I mean that that's just it's powerful. And they can say look councilperson I've been out
0: there standing in the marsh and seeing the impact. Right of what's happening.
1: I, you know, I'm Charleston Waterkeeper. I've got an agenda. Every time right. I walk in the room, I have an agenda. Right. You know, uh, Jane Doe or Joe Blow off the street yeah. doesn't. You know, they're just there because they care. And and that's so, and if we can play a little role in that like connecting people to that democratic process, you know, and and getting them engaged in those issues that are impacting their future, that I, that's you know that's where Waterkeeper operates. You know. You've got another program getting ready to
0: launch or maybe it's already launched the Adopt a Creek program, where right, it's yeah. one more way for people to plug in and become more active in the waterways.
1: Yeah, the 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 recreational testing, the bacteria testings, you, we can take a limited number of volunteers for that program because the the quality assurance and quality control protocols are so robust. But we have a, a citizen science monitoring program that. Uh, is a great way to get involved. You get literally, you get a testing kit in a bucket, and you can adopt a site. We have um, about thirty sites that we would like to eventually have adopted. Uh, the the barrier for us right now, we have nine kits out in the field. the The kits are about five hundred dollars or so to equip the kit for the year, and then there's an ongoing cost with maintaining it and replenishing some of the consumables. But uh, it's just an awesome way for folks to get out. You know, you you essentially you adopt a site and you go out and sample it. You, you do, you know, you do your basic water quality chemistry, which are like the, the vital signs for a river or a creek, you know, temperature, salinity, dissolved oxygen, turbidity, things like that. And, you know, it, it, it's really neat. It, it builds this sense of ownership, right? Like that's my creek. I sample it, I know how it's doing. And I, the coolest thing is those volunteers, the nine that we have out in the field right now, are getting interest from people that are fishing or crabbing at particular spots or people that are putting kayaks in. They're like, what are you doing? What's going on? Right? You know, what's going who's doing that? Who are you with? You know? It'll start like, to sell
0: itself, right? Oh my
1: gosh, right? And like we're we've been actually having a little bit of trouble sort of keeping up with that. I don't think we expected that so much yeah. at the beginning, but it you know, it's a whole new Kind of network uh, and way to be involved. You'll with be Water like, Keeper. well, if they want their box, yeah. they could step up and help fund right five hundred dollar <laughs> yeah. testing box. Right, you know, five hundred dollars yeah. is you know it's nothing to shake a stick at, yeah. but it's it's um, it's not. You know, earth-shattering amounts of, right. of, of money, but, uh, you know, when you add it up across the, uh, you know, across the scale of our budget, it adds up pretty quickly. It has an impact. Right. And, you know, the idea is, you know, that that hopefully we'll be able to, as we bring on more people in the program, it'll attract more funding over time, but... Um, yeah you know, we're we're real pleased with the way it's it's kind of growing. So there's should be some good opportunities here yeah. before too long to get more involved with that kind of thing. Um, there's
0: a map on the back wall that I'm looking at behind you right now as you're talking. and just you see all that water, all those marshes, all those rivers, all those creeks, among which hopefully more and more people will be adopting for for uh, for monitoring. Is there something different about what you've seen here, how waterkeeper has to operate in the low country and in Charleston versus, Atlanta and the Chattahoochee or whatever other city or bottle, body of water someone's wrestling with.
1: We have a lot of water. <laughs> it's everywhere. We have a lot of water, <laughs> we have more water than land. <laughs> right. And we've got a lot of marsh. Uh, and you know, I, and I, I haven't seen it all. I haven't. So our jurisdiction is Charleston Waterkeeper is basically the tri county area. And I, I've been to a lot of places, but I haven't seen all, I haven't seen all the Cooper river. I've right. seen all the Ashley river. Um, you know, I've seen uh, not all of the stone. I've seen all of the 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 um the wando. but I, you know, gosh, I mean, there's so many creeks I haven't been in and so many different little corners and you know it 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 just it takes time. and you know that there's there's just a lot of water and it's it it's great. It's a great thing and it's a good problem to have. I but guess it's the classic sort of, yeah, opportunity yeah. and challenge all at the yeah. same time. Right. It's
0: so woven into the way of life here in mm-hmm. a powerful way that engages many people in the health of that waterway. Right. And at the same time, it's
1: like, oh my God, where do you begin? Right. You know? and, and, you know, to, to complicate it all, like the tide comes in, water goes one way, one part of the day and comes back out. And it does that twice a day, right? It goes in and out twice a day. You know, if if we were uh, like, I mean, let's think of our our friends, the, you know, Chattahoochee Riverkeeper or Congaree Riverkeeper, you know, water flows one direction, right? So imagine they get a high bacteria result, they can trace it back up and find a sewer leak, right? You know, if we get a high bacteria result, it could be coming from any which direction, or it could be coming through, you know, groundwater and and surface water interaction. You know, it, 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 just makes things more dynamic and more complicated. Um, but also the, we love a good challenge. So we're on it. Well, let me uh, switch gears and, and maybe talk a little bit
0: about where your motivations come from and, uh, well, let's dig into your personal life. That sounds good, right? So <laughs> where did you first start Uh-oh. developing a connection to the water? Oh,
1: geez. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I think I had my first, uh, well, I guess full, full disclosure. I'm grew up, Near Cleveland, Ohio, and and uh, Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River, which of course is the famous one for for catching That's on right. fire. But you know, I we didn't go as a kid. I didn't go to no. Let me stop there because most people don't hold the fact that I'm from Ohio against me. So <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been I've been around here for you're in good ha- company around here. <laughs> I've been here for, for half for half my life, I guess now. And and um, you know, th- this place especially you know you get a little bit of puff mud in your veins and it's all over I you know I, I can't imagine being anywhere else at this point but I had you know sort of my first experiences uh, in 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 the ocean and and you know estuaries uh, in in Maine um, had some family, my mom's side of the family is from up that direction, and, and we would spend a little bit of time there every summer. And Spectacular just, place. Oh, it's beautiful. That yeah. it was uh, you know, But I, I'm, my perception, I think, is a little warped, right? Because right. I've only ever been there in the summer. I have no idea what it's like in the winter. But uh, uh, the other side of the family would come down to South Carolina uh, in the spring. And so, you know, those were kind of sort of that, that northeast kind of experience and the South Carolina experience, you know, as a kid. You know, experiencing those two very, very different sort of coastal environments, uh, I, I think always just left a, a really deep impression on me. I think, you know, I've always just felt at home on the water. Nice. It's hard. It's just, there's a sense of peace and of yeah. belonging and of, uh, it's, It's. I mean, it's hard to describe. It's. It's something I could, it's something I feel, but I don't know that I could easily put it into words. <laughs> and when you skip out at work and, for half a day, you might find you yeah. on a surfboard or, <laughs>
0: yeah. or, or for that matter, even in a pool swimming. Right. I mean, you're literally yeah. your your biggest yeah. interests and in hobbies are yeah. water related. Right?
1: right. Yeah. I you know, everything uh, everything from from what I do and where I live and what I have in the car at any given moment is all designed to keep me. On or near the water. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, yeah, I you know I, I love I love surfing and and really you know the thought of it being too polluted to you know paddle or to fish or to surf or to swim is really what it's just something I'm not willing to accept and that's really what drives or underlies you know kind of my personal conviction to to do this work. I think you know you can't you can't do this without. It, it's just it's too hard it's too demanding you know it's too all-consuming to do it without you can't do it casually right like it has to it has to be something it has to be i used to think you could keep a separation between you and work but you can't doing this kind of work it it's just all in right you, you you and you have to in order to do it justice and if, if you can't do that you know it might not be the right thing um and and it's tough. Be frankly, it's tough sometimes. It's yeah. tough. You well, we're know. glad
0: we're glad you're all in. <laughs> you and Cheryl and the rest of the crew and the, and the board and the volunteers. And I, I would imagine again coming back to you, that's where you're being able to find the people who are actively involved in the outdoors, whether that's through commercial recreational fishing or surfing, yeah. or even just time spent paddling or whatever. Those are the people who wind up coming out to support the volunteer programming, the testing programming, and then showing up at. Council to ban plastics
1: and, and, you know, that, that's the thing, you know, Charleston offers so many different ways to build your own kind of personal connection to right. the surrounding estuary. And, and, you know, whether, I mean, for some people it's photography, you know, other people it's painting, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, some people who have, a few women that do, sort of, excuse me, have a few women that do, uh, art with found objects out of, from, from our cleanups. I mean, people have all these neat and interesting, I mean, you know, people are, you know, everybody's different, right? And everybody has sort of a different connection to, you know, the Ashley River or the Cooper or whatever. And it's just, it's really, it's, it's neat to see when I wanted, of, one of the things I just love is when people get inspired by what we do and then take that and filter it through their own lens and the own, their own connection. And then reflect that out in some outward way, you know, whether that be, you know, uh, art, whether it be film, whether it be, uh, whether it be showing up at a council meeting, whether it be talking to, I mean, that is awesome, yeah. right? That you can just see the, that kind of stewardship ethic, like spreading through the community. And they internalize little. it and personalize it. Oh, and, yeah. And then, and then yeah. carry it forward. Oh, and it's, so, it, it's so neat. Like, I need mean, it's see little stuff. It's just little stuff too. Like, oh, you know, I stopped using straws and I got one of these stainless steel ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just it, you know, it always gives you a, it always gives you a nice, a nice, you know, little, little push in the back. Right. <laughs> what did it, what it take for someone who, um,
0: wanted to get into this field? You know, you said oh, it takes geez. a lot of commitment and yeah. it's hard to do it halfway, but what kind of background or maybe even more specifically, what kind of skills does someone need to, to, to wade in, so to speak?
1: Wow. Oh my gosh. Like if I could start from scratch, what would it be? I, you know, what was, before yeah. you answer that, what was yeah. your path in your background, <laughs> professional <laughs>
0: background? And does that have any bearing on the answer you give to someone who wants to oh, get yeah, in into Oh know, that's a good it. way to think about that.
1: That's a good way to think about that. So my undergrad work was in biology and then, and then I went uh, here to the, uh, to the college and did the master's of environmental studies program and, and kind of found the law, I guess, right? Never, I don't have any attorneys in the family and never, but I just really had of developed a love for law and policy. And, and that sounds really nerdy, <laughs> <It's all right. laughs> but, uh, you know, sort of developed a love for the way, you know, we, there's this fundamental and underlying belief that, I mean, it runs all through, all the way back to the Magna Carta. And, and even before, to the Institutes of Justinian, that you know water and air are too valuable to be privately owned, and every society has dealt with that in a different way. And so, you know, we have we have environmental law and regulations how the United States deals with it. And I mean, it just was fascinating to see how that worked out. And. Uh, From from the MES program at the college, went on to do the went went on to Charleston School of Law. had had a little detour in Columbia for a while, working uh, as a clerk uh, at the South Carolina Court of Appeals, which was an awesome, awesome experience. Uh, That was just. Really neat for a lot of different reasons that are probably beyond the scope of this. But, I, you know, that that experience, I, I think, um, the, I, I find the legal training valuable sure, almost every day. Yeah. And the scientific understanding and sort of the policy understanding is almost as equally as important. I mean, those are the two areas that you're working with when you're doing conservation work, right? You're doing, you know, th- those are the two sort of technical you know areas that you're working with. Well, you know that's really helpful for all the the, the program and the advocacy work and 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 all that sort of thing. But. Uh you know, nobody tells you uh, how to write a nonprofit budget, or you know how to how to um, how to get up and speak at a donor event, or you know how to how to write uh, advocacy email or anything yeah. like yeah. right, yeah. Or, or how to yeah. structure the back end of your organization, or you yeah. know, like how to communicate in general. You know, yeah. you just sort of feel your way through those things, and I think um, you know th- when it comes down to it. You know the, the the passion, I think, is a given. That's you know you, you need that to be to square one. yeah, that's a sort right. of past table stakes. right. And, and and you know beyond that, I think you know you can bring a, what, what I think is cool is you can bring a lot of different sort of experiences to bear. And, and I think you know you see a lot of the attorney, the background, but you also see a lot of commercial fishermen in the waterkeeper movement. You see a lot of recreational fishermen. You see a lot of fishing guides that have gotten involved. Um, you also see scientists. Oh yeah, you see scientists uh, that have that have you know were you know e- either have retired and then and then gotten involved on the advocacy side of things. Uh, the thing that's impossible to prepare for, I think, is the is is the is the community engagement and organizing, right? That you just you have to be a people person, you know, you have to be a people person and you have to like talking to people and all their idiosyncrasies, you know, you know, all all their, you know, and I mean, you just, you have to really like people and, you know, all their nuances to be able to do this work, you know, and, and, you know, whether it be talking to council members or state legislators, or whether it be talking to a commercial fisherman, or whether it be talking to, you know, a, a school teacher while you're you know, cleaning up the marsh one afternoon. It's, it's, you know, it's it's a really, it's a people and it's a relationship business right. a, a lot of the times, right? And that goes from your, you know, all the way across all aspects of the organization. That's awesome. yeah. Well, um, where you are today, and if you look ahead
0: now, say five years or even 10 years down the road, where's Waterkeeper going and what do you, what would oh, you love geez. to see? <laughs>
1: yeah. What would you love to see yeah. added to the fold? Oh, I mean, wow. We, you know,
0: we mentioned sort of yeah. a, a broader scope of, Sites to do testing, you know, five hundred dollar kits. There's all kinds of things that increased growth and funds could go to. We
1: we uh, we hustle really hard, but we're a staff of two. You do an amazing amount of work for for two two people plus volunteers. Thank you, thank you. And and you know the volunteers are a huge part of that. Right. I you know the the vol- I mean, geez, I, we we couldn't do what we do without this. I mean, we we put I think fifteen hundred volunteers out in the community last year. I mean, it was just incredible. Yeah, and uh, you know that's all. I mean, that's all Cheryl. Like she is. I mean, she might. Yeah, I don't know. Well, she's fantastic working with people like that. I, they for so many people, their first experience with Waterkeeper is Cheryl in yeah, a volunteer event, yeah. and it's I love it. I, she does a great job with it, and as <laughs> she does a really great job with it. But I, you know, at the end of the day, we're only two people, and, and you know, a lot of we um, sort of a uh, you know to to really grow this thing right, and you know to really see it reach its full potential, and then we're going to need to add a few staff members, right? To to kind of unleash some of the Capacity. I mean, we've right. got the foundation to be bigger and stronger. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of of getting the the funding to match that foundation, and so you know that, that's that's a big thing. And you know, it it. Um, it's, it's an impact question right, right. you know right. I mean how, how it's just the question of you know we, we know what to do we know it needs to be done we need the resources to do it I think you'll I think you'd see our creek watcher program expand I think you'd see our, our recreational water quality testing expand but the the other thing I think you'd see expand too is that sort of community engagement and community activism you know there's no shortage of threats to Charleston's waterways. I mean, it's, you know, as we're, we are aggressively growing and developing as a community almost, you know, within the blink of an eye. And that comes with, you know, a lot of, a lot of threat. Right. And so, you know, what I think you would see with the little bigger organization is a much more active across a broader range of issues uh, and, and just a, a, a stronger and, uh, you know, a, a stronger voice for for clean, healthy water. Yeah. Well, there's a call to arms for for more
0: volunteers, for more funders, more more donors to sort of get plugged in. And, right. and as you said, I mean, the region's not slowing down one bit at all. No. If anything, no. it feels like it's picking up pace. Right. So, and of.
1: and you know, we we you know we as an organization stand in between this place where you know what what law and policy promises and what the reality is. Yeah. And there's there's really there's really nobody else in that space, and and that's what I think when people get involved, they feel really thankful, but it's also a little scary, which is I think you know really like highlights. where is everybody? We're the only ones in right. this in this, in this right. spot right now. Yeah, I mean we we, we need you. Like yeah. let's go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we need you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, many thanks to you and to Cheryl.
0: who's yeah. he's not here right yeah. now, but for Cheryl for the amazing work that she's doing, uh, to you for doing this. Yeah, for- well. Thanks. Following, following your calling and, yeah. and and going full in. Thanks for having.
1: Uh, thanks for for having me this. Yeah, man. Always great to talk, Robert. Well, we appreciate. <laughs> it. I want to get talk. back
0: out on the water. Yeah. I can recommend uh, either if anyone has time or get in touch with um, with Waterkeeper through the website, through social. But to get out there on the water with you guys to do some good or to even get the opportunity to go do the water quality. Testing is really an amazing thing, and it does. it. Just that simple effort of getting out there will change your outlook
1: on it forever. Yeah. And you haven't seen Charleston until you've seen it from the water. Nice period. I said. Thanks, buddy. So, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to The Way Out There. Avoid missing any future episodes by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. We'll be back soon with a fun interview that Jeremy did in a trailer. And as always... We owe a special shout-out to Nick Loritano for performing and producing the Way Out There music and handling all the editing. So stay tuned for more, and in the meantime, we hope you're getting Way Out There.